This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat in Omaha in Caverns Deep below the metro area, it's our pleasure to welcome you to episode 692 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. I'm your head number one. My name is Matt Baum. And Joe, you watch The Voice, right? What do you think about Gwen Stefani calling herself Japanese to defend all her Asian culture co-opting back in the day? I don't watch The Voice. Second of all, I'm your head number two, the internet's Joe Patrick. And third of all... Marvel Comics Editor-in-Chief C.B. Sabolsky used to do this kind of thing all the time, and he turned out just fine. Yeah, he even had, like, a fake Japanese name that he wrote under for a while. Yeah, Remember you know, that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, see, I apologize. I just assumed you watched The Voice with all the other garbage that you watch on a nightly basis. Nah, we, we ain't into The Voice. It's no. time for another Cosmic Longbox episode where we train our sights on back issues based on a theme. After that, we're going to set you up with our must-read picks for next week, but now... The cosmic long box opens, showering us with weird crackling energy, which means it's back issue review time in the ziggurat. It was only a matter of time before we ran out of fun themes for our back issue reviews. So the cosmic long box is switching gears and making us revisit the works of one of our favorite creators. With Mark Waid's triumphant return to DC and his latest Lazarus Planet event, the Cosmic Longbox has us taking a look at his work with the big two publishers, Marvel and DC, so we can examine when and why he became one of the most esteemed creators in the halls of the Ziggurat. Joe, it only seems right to start with his very first work at DC. I was surprised to see how long ago this was, quite honestly. Yeah, it's true. Matt is, of course, talking about Action Comics number 572 from 1985. It is, look, I'm doing all DC. Matt's doing all Marvel. They're all written by Mark Wade. I'm not going to say all that every single time. I will. Okay. <laughs> the art in this, uh, in Wade's story is by Rick Hoberg. And here is uh, a bit of a synopsis for you. Superman takes Pete Ross's son, John, to the Fortress of Solitude for a visit and discovers that almost everything inside it has vanished. Question. Is John yes. still a thing? He's not, right? No. Okay. Jonathan Ross has a destiny he's never seen again. Okay. Had a, had a destiny. They made it all go away with the crisis. Yeah. Crisis, when, crisis came and wiped John gotcha. out, out of continuity. Gotcha. So. Not only is Action Comics 572 Mark Wade's first work for DC, it is his first professional comic work, period. And I have to admit, it shows. At this point in time, Action Comics is just marking time while Crisis on Infinite Earths rages on elsewhere. I think it must have like just gotten started around this time. In about a year, Alan Moore will put out whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, and it'll close the book on the pre-crisis Superman with John Byrne's reboot following close behind. Wade's story is simplistic, even by pre-crisis standards. Oh, yeah. It's the kind of low-stakes adventure that this version of the character would often star in. There's not much here to link Wade to the fan-favorite writer he would one day become, but aside from 
one more short story in Action 576, a few issues from now. His next writing gig at DC wouldn't come until 1989, four years later. The art by Hoberg is okay at best. It apes the familiar styles of other stronger artists of the era. The less said about the other two stories in the issue, <laughs> yeah, the better. It's just garbage. <laughs> However, it is pretty cool that legendary Golden Age artist Wayne Boring got to come back and draw a follow-up to a story that he did 30 years earlier, which, uh, you so know, the DC, for the kids. <laughs> well, yeah, right. I mean, it is basically a children's story. A no, but I mean, like, those kids that were, like, 30 years ago are like, I wonder whatever happened. They're like, oh, man, oh, Gallo, my old friend Gallo. Yeah, they're like, I love Gallo. And then in the second story, he saves a bunch of space Furbies. Like, they literally look like Furby. They do. I, I can't really recommend Action Comics 572 beyond it being an artifact of historical curiosity. And there is some value in seeing where Wade's celebrated career began. I'm going to give this a skim it. Yeah, this is wild because it, it, you know, the first time that he wrote Superman and his first professional work. And obviously he's just doing a golden age thing, doing what they were doing in action comics at the time, which blows my mind that by 1985, they were still writing Superman like this. Not really. Uh, not all the time. Not I, all the time. But his his adventures just were pretty simple. Was it just like action comics was like this? Was there, I mean. um, No, I mean, it, action comics wasn't always like, here's three stories and they're all very juvenile. Like, no. This because there are some like, issues of. This reads like golden age shit. It's 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 really silver agey schlocky. Yeah, there's super ventriloquism yeah. here. He's got microscopic super, hey, vision. Super ventriloquism yeah. makes an appearance in the 80s in a story by Jack, none other than Jack Kirby. So, well, I believe it's that, good dude. enough for a Kirby. No, I mean, it's ridiculous. It is what it is. The art is. Yeah, he's doing like he's trying to do like a Kurt Swan. Right. And it's does. And he's no Kurt. There's Swan. a uh, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of a style I, I recognize uh, in this story and the one before. Uh, you know, like people like literally like straight up swiping from like Jose Gar Luis Garcia Lopez, okay. Kurt Swan, certainly George Perez. And so, yeah, it's 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 somebody's just like, I need you to draw a Superman story and make it look like every other Superman story right, we put right. out. And, and not to mention the thing. other the others did as well. So, I mean, whatever. Yeah, exactly. This is interesting to see, like you said, as an artifact. That's it. I'm going to give it a skim it. This was not a great time for Superman, but no, no, no. I mean, look, look, this is a bad comic. I, like, yeah. this is not a good comic book. A year later, things would improve quite a bit. Right. <laughs> but I did get I did get a kick out of reading Mark Wade's first professional work. So that's definitely yeah. worth your time. I had no idea. As Joe mentioned, I'll be handling the Marvel portion of Mr. Wade's work. So let's jump to his very first Marvel work with Deadpool, Volume 2, Number 1, Sins of the Past. It was from Marvel, 1994, written by Mark Wade with art by Ian Churchill. Here is your solicit. The mad mutant called Black Tom Cassidy sends the walking wrecking ball, known as the Juggernaut, after the Merc with a Mouth because he needs a part of Deadpool's body. Gross. Plus, a man from the past of Deadpool and Banshee is out to kill our lovable lunatic at any cost, and X-Force's siren is caught in the middle. Thank you to the kids over at the X-Men fandom wiki. They do a really good job finding this stuff. Those guys on those 
kids on the Marvel and DC fandom sites do no, amazing. This is like work. a separate one. They didn't even have a good one on the Marvel or DC one. This was like straight up X Men fandom or whatever. So it was a separate I thing. Mean. I don't know. For some reason, I thought this miniseries was the first time Deadpool became the comedic character we know and love no. today. It turns out he's always been a merc with a mouth, but before this, Fabian Nicesia wasn't writing any funny dialogue. <laughs> he was mouthy. He was kind of tough guy at best. Here, Wade leans into the witty dialogue, and I would argue writes the first actually funny Deadpool dialogue. Not a bad gig for your first Marvel job either. Deadpool was hot as hell coming off his first appearance in New Mutants 98 and his first miniseries. Wade also is able to deftly avoid Claremont's extreme Irish banshee dialogue and writes both him and Siren like just actual Irish human beings. The art is a little tricky. Churchill was one of my favorites back in the day, and I admit... This does not age very well, but it's also not as controversial as a lot of the Leafield stuff at the time. I still like his art here. And yes, it's blocky. There's some POV issues, but his action scenes are great, particularly the sword fight, with the Black Tom's goons. You've got Deadpool doing a lot of Spider-Man moves, you know, like jumping up with his feet together and stuff like that. Churchill was really good at it. And I remember back in the day, when I first picked up this comic, my buddy Jeff, who was strictly Spider-Man, that's all he would do. I put this in front of him and was like, check this out, man. I think you'll dig it. And he instantly fell in love with Deadpool because all the X books were really serious at the time. And I think Deadpool was a little more lighthearted and reminded him of Spidey. Wade would go on to write much more headier stuff than this. But when you picked up a Deadpool comic, it was for this blockbuster anti-hero action. That's exactly what is delivered here, by the way. And it's not the big, muscly, extreme, violent, bullshit 90s stuff that we bag on. This is still fun. This is still well done. And it features Banshee and Siren in two of their best costumes. I am giving this. I'll buy it. Love this miniseries. Uh, I do love their costumes. I I, I do really love yeah the the, the blue and, and yellow and like siren in the green and yellow. Oh, love it. Yeah. Uh, now, I will agree begrudgingly that this banshee dialogue and siren dialogue is slightly better than yeah. Claremont's. I don't believe there is a G anywhere in any of their word balloons. It's all <laughs> an apostrophe as far as the eye can see. It's but not egregious. Though. It's not egregious. It's <laughs> no. not it's it's not like phonetically spelled right. to the point that you can't really read what it says. That aside, I agree that the art is dicey. Uh but this is also young Churchill. Yeah. This is not uh and there's some really like he good would get panels. better and better and better. Like by the time he's drawing cable, it, yeah. like he, he I love that run of Ian Churchill. But like the first shot with with the juggernaut coming through the wall and his, his fists look like they're seven feet wide and he stands 30 feet tall. Like, that's a great no, panel. I love like that. It's cool. It, like, it's super cool. And you can tell that, you know, he's got a great sense of action and flow of the story and, and layout and, and things like that. It's just he's working out his anatomy. Yeah. yeah. And he will always be kind of a life LD guy. And. Definitely. He just he does it better. You know, he does it better. He definitely does it better. He also gives us the first glimpse at Wade's real face. This is the first maskless Deadpool. That can't be. Yeah, this is the first. They did not no show kidding. before this. Yeah. Wow. 
Uh, I will say that this is a this is a more jokey Deadpool for sure. It's Joe Kelly though that turns him into a cartoon character. Absolutely, absolutely. And the, like our Deadpool starts with Joe Kelly, but this is kind of the proto version of that where he's making a lot of wisecracks. He's he's basically Spider Man with swords in this. Yeah, uh, yeah. This was super fun. It's very very nineties, but it's a lot of fun. I love Black Tom. Cassidy. I love the fact that he is friends with the friggin' juggernaut of all people. Oh, they're super like, buddies. I, yeah. It's like Wonder Man and the Beast. Man. Yeah. They're super I, buddies. I want, like, I want more unlikely comic book character pairings. I want best friends in my comics, just like I want to see Superman and Batman hugging. Yeah. I want to see Black Tom and Juggernaut hanging out. I think I thought this was great. It's so fun. What's really wild is like looking at this Deadpool back then. And this wasn't just Ian Churchill, the way that Deadpool was drawn by everybody at this time. He was a big ripped up dude. He's like, beefy. Yeah. He's he beefy. was gigantic. And now he's drawn way more like slim. That's also Churchill though. Every dude in this comic is beefy. But I mean, like everybody was drawing him like that at the time. He was a great big yeah. guy. Uh, I've never read this whole series. I've read the first volume, which was drawn by Joe Matarera. Uh, that one is also great. Yeah. The circle chase. Uh, this was, this was great. I'll, I'll probably read the rest of it. I'm giving it a buy it. And look, I, I don't care. I love this era of the X universe. Oh I yeah. Love, no, no apologies. I, I, I love the like X-Men one, two. Oh Yeah. I mean, like it's look, an onslaught kind of run of X-Men. This was still pretty early in the 90s where they were ramping all this stuff up when all the extreme shit that we hate hadn't really hit yet. And people were trying to ape the good stuff like this. And yeah. like, and even like the new mutant stuff that like gets made fun of now. It's great. I still love it. Go back and revisit the first appearance of Cable and Deadpool and all that. Stuff. It's great. <laughs> like I completely love those issues later on is when things sort of went off the uh, rails. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. There's a clear there's a there's a clear vision for the X-Men universe it feels like. And uh, even though, you know, there's a lot of twists and turns and we get Onslaught, which I still love Onslaught. It it feels like they move in unison, you know, we get Age of Apocalypse uh, not too long after this. And it's just what a great time. And I love it. This is my taunt. Yeah. Get it? Button. Let's speed back over to DC with The Flash Volume 2, number zero. The art in this issue is by Mike Waringo. Here's your uh, synopsis, solicit, what have you. A zero-hour tie-in issue. Trapped in a realm of energy on the other side of the speed of light, Wally West finds himself leaping through time as an intangible presence, observing key moments in his life. Can he escape and get back to his present? And how does his joining with this mysterious force <laughs> change him? Get it? That'll be important in a minute. It wouldn't be a proper DC crisis if something bad didn't happen to a flash. And so Wally West has run beyond sound, beyond light, and beyond the very limits of speed itself in an attempt to save the Earth of the future from being obliterated. And as it was with his Uncle Barry almost a decade earlier, all that was left of him was his red and yellow costume. Or was it? By this point, Wade had been killing it on The Flash for almost three years, with future superstar artist Mike Waringo joining him with issue number 80 in 1993. 
DC's Zero Month gave a special zero issue to every ongoing title this month, many of which provided a look back at their respective characters' history or set the stage for future storylines. Here, Wade and Waringo do both, as Wally bounces along his own timeline, seeing his history unfold in reverse. Through Wally, Wade offers a lot of great modern insight into those classic Silver Age stories and into Wally himself. In 1994, Wally was about to learn that everything he knew about his powers was wrong, and this journey through time did the same thing for his origin and his motivations as a hero. Next issue, the storyline that properly introduces the Speed Force begins, changing the character and the entire Flash family forever. The late Mike Wieringo's art is absolutely wonderful here, even this early in his career. His work has an undeniable charm and a real sense of joy to it. Like even, even though it can get serious and, and there are stakes, like there's just something joyful about Mike Waringo's art. The flash number zero is one of many high points of Wade's run on the title and his long partnership with an artist that we lost way too soon. This gets a huge buy it from me. Yeah, this comic's fantastic. This was this was the Flash run that made me care about the Flash because before this, like, I just didn't care. It, I had picked up some stuff before that people told me I would dig, and like, nah, nothing here. And that's why I loved Wally West because that was my Flash when I checked this yep. out, and it was Mark Wade's fault. Absolutely, like, I I I picked up a few issues and went, "This is great. I love the art in this. All the artists that worked with him on that run were fantastic." But with Ringo, he got to like redesign the flash's costume too and put like the lightning bolts on his belt and stuff and like that was him no right? that Wasn't was it? a different artist oh, okay. that was a that was a different artist okay but, i thought um, it was him but the speed force but, but where ringo but where ringo is the guy that kind of popularized the uh like lightning coming off of wally as he ran okay that was where ringo all right in the same way that like mcfarland invented spaghetti webbing where yeah, ringo yeah, kind yeah. of invented yeah. that look I'll buy that. But like, he's kind of the reason we think of the way the flash is drawn today, right? All the lightning and the speed force and all. And well, Wade created the speed force, obviously, but he Wade. uh, Yeah. This is actually Michael Raringo's last issue. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Mark Wade. Uh, A different artist takes over next issue. I would argue that Mark Wade is more important to the flash as a character, not just Wally West, but everything that's happened since then, than God, the next five or six creators that did anything for him. I mean, honestly, Jeff Johns <laughs> did some really important stuff. Don't get me wrong, but it was Wade that kind of like made all of this like speed force BS that like opened the whole world of speedsters and how we thought about the flash and how powerful he was. Right. I mean, I don't think that's weird to say. Right. Um, I mean, Jeff Johns's run for as as good and you know important as it is on its own, he was a Mark Wade super fan, yeah. and his run directly built on Mark, Wade. without a doubt. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, Mark Wade is the guy that basically laid the foundation for the character we know today, for sure. And we're gonna talk about uh, Waringo's art a little more later on. It's wild to look back at this stage because, like, it's there. You can see it all. It's there. And he just gets better from here. It's not. He had his own style. Yeah. He had his own style right from the jump. And, like, yeah, to he... compare it 
like one of those dudes that came out fully formed, basically. Like his yeah, style. I mean, was just he would there. get better as he learned, as, yeah. as he got gained experience. But like his style was there right off the bat. Like if you look at old Chris, like you know, we did that Vertigo episode and we talked about Chris Bacalo. Yeah, absolutely. Another. There's guy. nothing about that comic about that issue of Shade the Changing Man that would make you go, "Oh, that's Chris Bacalo." Right. Nothing. And uh, to compare it to the next artist that that draws the book, the artists of the next storyline, Terminal Velocity are Salvador LaRocca and Carlos Pacheco. Right. And Carlos Pacheco, you can see, you can see what he's doing. You can see his future in his work, but Salvador LaRocca's art doesn't look anything no, like, no, he drew fantastic four in the late nineties. Uh, and his work would look totally different than it did on the flash. Oh yeah. His X-Men stuff too looked even more different than that. And then all of a sudden he became an entirely different artist that we don't like anymore in but a bad anyway. way right? yeah, exactly <laughs> and but like yeah micro mike waringo it's like you can look at mike waringo's first penciling work and yeah. go that's mike waringo absolutely his style always stayed kind of cartoony and soft and it's perfect for the flash this book's great this book's just great i love wade's run on the flash it's hard for me not to just name it as the best flash run ever i don't know i'd have to sit down and think about it but i love what he did for this character and the world he built around Wally West. It is the best flash run. Well, Mark Wade's run is the best flash run. It probably that's, is, that's, right? It probably is. I, like, I don't I really love think that's Johns controversial run. to say. Again, you can't have the Jeff Johns run without the Mark Wade I agree. Run, so. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Then flicks the secret switch that releases the brilliant red costume of the Flash, world's fastest human. Hopping back to Marvel for another icon. We're going to talk about Captain America number 444. This was, like I said, from Marvel. It was 1994. It's written by Wade with art by Ron Garney. Here's your solicit. Two weeks after Captain America's disappearance, a group of heavily armed terrorists hold the president and his bodyguards hostage in the Jefferson Memorial, demanding the missing hero show himself. The Avengers had been keeping the news of his fate quiet, with some still believing he would soon return. The terrorist's sophisticated armor is set to automatically explode if anyone comes near them, making it impossible, even for Quicksilver, to rescue all the hostages with his speed. Nonetheless, with the memory of their former leader guiding them, some careful observation, the Avengers find a way to defeat the bad guys and, with their reminiscence, even inspire skeptical young government agent assigned to the case that had been doubting the importance of Captain America. Their efforts saved the hostages, but at the expense of the Jefferson Memorial. <laughs> yeah, you know, you can build a new one, right? The Avengers also realized they need to come clean to the public about Cap's presumed death. This, I, this is more of a setup. I apologize. This is directly from the wiki, and it's a great setup. Elsewhere, yeah. in a high-tech control center, the shadowy mastermind of the attack considers his objective to publicize Captain America's fate a success. All the while, the real Captain rests in suspended animation within the same room. Oh my God. Leave it to Mark Wade to start his cap run with an issue that doesn't feature Steve Rogers other than a last page reveal. Keep in mind, at this time, all the classic icons were being sidelined for Punishers, Lobos, and Spawns. Superman was dead. Batman's back was broken. And Wade is going a totally different direction, putting Cap back in the spotlight by letting the Avengers spell out exactly why the character is so important. This was a ballsy time 
to write what would become a character-defining story for Cap in the 90s. But at this time, I don't think anybody could have done it better. This is the run that got Cap out of that stupid armor. It brought Sharon Carter back from the dead and even kept Cap powerless to show that Steve was the real hero because of who he is and not his powers. Later on, he teams up with the Red Skull to get his powers back. It is amazing. (laughs) Now, it can be argued This is easily the worst Avengers lineup of all time in the worst 90s redesigned costumes ever. But I love Ron Garney's art here. Unlike the Churchills and the Leafields of the day, Garney was a pro. He could do the flashy stuff. He still had a very solid understanding of of like classic comic book storytelling. Does this look very 90s? Yes. The armor that these terrorists are wearing is just stupid. Absolutely stupid. And it looks like each one costs a billion dollars. <laughs> but this is a fan. They're not in it for the money, Matt. Right. This is a fantastic first issue that sets up a fantastic cap storyline. I can't give this a bigger buy it. We, we've gone on and on about the run before this, but we've talked about it at length. It was um, like NSA's. Mark Grunewald. Thank you. Mark Grunewald's run, which is pretty silly, but a really good time. This is it has a lot of high points. It also has a lot of low points. Plenty of low points. This is where Cap gets really, really serious and boils down the character for who Cap is. I don't think anybody could have done it better than Wade. Huge buy it. Yes. And you know what? It's, it's so funny to me that literally the issue before this, we were still dealing with Captain America in that God awful armor. Oh yeah. It, he was still wearing the, the, the super soldier serum was, was breaking down in his body and it was killing him. Yeah. And so he had to wear this armor and it was awful, but yeah. it did give us Jack flag and we love Jack flag. That's true. Zero. That's true. But it also gave us American dream. So whatever she sucks, <laughs> but yeah, no, a Wade came in with Garney and like kicked the door down and reestablished he had to tear cap down all the way to bring him back to what he should be like the whole next arc uh project rebirth i read the, like i read the your issue and then i was like i need to read i need to read wade's whole first arc and so i read the first like proper multi-part arc which is operation rebirth and it's all about cap fighting his way back, getting the super soldier serum restored to his body. It's awesome. And then the next arc is man without a country where he freaking gets like excommunicated or accused of treason or something. I haven't read it in years, but I need to reread it. And he gets disavowed basically like they, they're basically like, nope. And and so Wade basically had to reestablish like, this is what makes cap great. And it's and then Heroes Reborn happened, and Wade got fired. Wade yep. and Garden got fired. Yeah, and of all of the creative teams that lost their jobs when those book got books got canceled, relaunched, and then relaunched again after Heroes Reborn was over, the overwhelming majority of the fans demanded that Wade and Garney get their job back. Yeah, yeah. And to be fair, it's like it's it's one of those things. I was reading about it where sales did tick up on Captain America, but they weren't doing 
X-Men numbers. They weren't doing, well, no. you know, like, and that's what Marvel wanted. And they were right. saying, all right, this was, this was right when Marvel went lean into it. Everybody draws like Joe Maduria. Everybody draws like Rob Lee Field. Everything's extreme. Everyone's in armor. Everybody gets spikes. Do it. And Wade and Garney went, right. no, we won't do that. We're not doing that to Captain America. And, right. and, and they fought. They literally fought with Marvel editorial to keep this story going the way it is. And just saying, like, look, you can do it to everybody else. You can put spikes on Thor if you need to. Fine. But we're not doing they that did. to Cap. And yeah. it was later. People went back and read this and went, oh, my God, this is great. And I think it's because yeah. they read the Heroes Reborn stuff and they went, oh, my God, what's wrong with Cap's chest? <laughs> you know? He's got cancer. He's got cancer. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, and, you know, look at, look at all, like you mentioned it when you talked about the Avengers. Look at the other books. Look at the other books around this time. Avengers is in the toilet. Yeah. Fantastic Four is not much better. No. I think. Even, I think we might be in the grips or on the cusp of Teen Tony. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. In Iron Man. And then you had Captain America, the outlier, the only book that actually improved before it got taken away. Yeah. And but yeah, read this, read this run and then skip the Heroes Reborn stuff and then come back for the new number one. Definitely. In uh, 1997. Yeah. And this cap run was just it was anchored and tanked by the worst Avengers and Avengers satellite comics ever written. And I don't think that's <laughs> yes. Yeah, some of think, the, the I, absolute dregs. Yeah. Like, I don't think I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't think it's hyperbole. I think that's just like really easy to say. I don't know that Iron Man, Thor, the Avengers were in a worse place at any time. <laughs> just garbage. I mean, that's hard to argue. I, I, I don't, ugh. Let's 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 keep celebrating the positive though. <laughs> this is a absolute win. Huge buy it for me. Our first team book of the episode is JLA number forty three. This came out from uh, DC in the year two thousand, uh, of course, by Wade and artist Howard Porter. Here is your actual actual solicit. Thanks to it being from the two thousands and the internet's long memory. Mark Wade makes his debut as new writer for the world's greatest superheroes. What could scare the JLA now that they've faced the menace of Mageddon? Spoilers, it's Batman. <laughs> I added that last part. <laughs> Graham Morrison is a tough act to follow, especially after an epic run that restored the JLA to true greatness. But Wade stepped into the role like a champ. This is the first chapter of Tower of Babel a classic story that saw the team systematically taken down one by one by Ra's al Ghul's League of Assassins with measures tailored to each hero's specific weakness. It's pretty common knowledge now that those attacks were planned by Batman himself in the event that any member of the League went rogue. But in the moment, all we knew was that the JLA had seemingly been shut down and that Ra's was on the cusp of fulfilling his plan to save the earth by wiping out most of the populace. Kind of an extreme, you know, extreme measure, but sort of a Thanos thing. No, I mean, do. like he, he wants to save the whales, Bit of a, you know? Well, that was, that's movie Thanos. <laughs> <laughs> Comic book Thanos just wants to impress a girl. Yeah, well, that's true. A dead girl, a dead girl. Yeah. 
Wade had already done several fill-in issues during Morrison's run, but his tenure as ongoing writer stands apart by featuring what Wade does best, focusing on strong character work and the character's connections. The veteran heroes share a long history that Wade highlights with simple comments and playful smiles with the help of Howard Porter's great art. Wonder Woman and The Flash have a fun race. Superman even calls Batman his friend at one point. Morrison's League was a pantheon of gods. Wade's is a close-knit group of friends and colleagues. But the action is just as thrilling. Porter's art is absolutely tremendous. His work improved by leaps and bounds from where he was when the series started in 1996, and I loved it even then. And he would only get better from here, despite a near-career-ending hand injury. If you stopped reading JLA at the end of Morrison's run, or if you're just looking for a great story about the greatest heroes in the DCU, do yourself a favor. Check out JLA 43. Huge buy it. Yep, following Grant Morrison. I mean, Jesus Christ. There is not many Who else could it have been? Who right. else would they have, could they have gotten? Like Neil you know Gaiman, I mean? maybe. I don't know. <laughs> like, that's a tough act to follow. And he slipped right in. And like all the things you said, he... He still kept it very high level. The threats were massive and stuff. Maybe not as spacey and sort of borderline psychedelic as what Morrison was doing. Brought it a little more down to earth. We got way more personable stories. And I think that's one of the things we're going to talk about, like these through lines, why we love this guy later. But just the little things he did. Yeah, like the JLA being friends and feeling like friends and stuff, you know, like that's awesome. I love that. <laughs> and even Batman was a little softer back then. And this Batman stuff with him planning everybody's down, like how to take everybody down that just came back to bite him in the butt again with this fail safe business and the chips of stuff that he's writing. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah, it did. <laughs> Stop it. Batman. Jesus. Uh, I love this racial ghoul. This is full superhero ripped up good looking Ra's al Ghul with the deepest V you've ever seen. <laughs> I just he's got a hairy chest. And he's not woo, afraid to show it off. Showing it off. Yeah, no, this is great. And you're right. Porter. I have this, I, I romanticized like Porter's art in my head where he's just like the best justice league, you know, artist there was. And I went back and looked at some of his early stuff and went, Oh, uh, you know, this is still flashy. And I mean, still he's good. probably not the best Justice League artist there ever was. It's but. still good. But at this point in his career, Howard Porter was just firing on all cylinders. And this book looks so good. <laughs> and, it, and he's not pushing any boundaries or doing anything weird. He's doing pretty standard superhero stuff. At this time in 2000, nobody else was doing it like this. He just had a style that was instantly recognizable. His framing was great. I love this guy. This is a massive fight. Let's jump back to where I prefer Mark Wade the best on a one-man show with Kazar. Volume three, number one. This is from Marvel. It was 1997, written by Wade with art by Andy Kubert. Here's your setup. Kazar, Lord of the Hidden Jungle, is many things. A British nobleman, a man lost in time, a husband, a father, best friend of a saber-toothed tiger, and younger brother to an incredibly evil man. When the father of Parnival and Kevin Plunder died, he left his sons the very keys to the mysteries of the savage land. And Parnival has decided to take the secrets for himself. See Kazar fight for honor and family in the verdant green jungles of the savage land and the harsh concrete jungle of New York. 
Kazar had not had a regular series. Wait, wait, real quick. You know what? Good for Parnival because if my dad was like, and these are my sons, Kevin and Parnival, <laughs> I'd have been evil too. Well, I mean, yeah, he doesn't have much of a choice with a name like that. <laughs> Kazar had not had a regular series for 20 years by the time this series launched. And it left a lot of fans wondering, why now? Marvel even asked Mark Wade that question, but it turns out he had a story to tell that would result in Kazar's only commercial success at the company since his creation back in 1940. Once again, Wade boils a character down to what makes them great and then uses his own sensibilities to make him likable too. This is not a chest-beating king of the jungle speaking in broken English. Wade's Kazar misses New York, teaches the locals to solve their land disputes with baseball rather than warfare, and he's a family man. Shannon the She-Devil comes off as an even more capable than probably Kazar himself, and his relationship with the saber-toothed tiger and best friend Zabu has never been better. They have this straight-up, like, Han and Chewie dialogue where Kazar is, like, just openly talking to his saber-toothed tiger, and Zabu goes, Row! and you'll see, and then he's instantly like, well, I wouldn't say it like that. I mean, like, sure, it's been tough, but <laughs> it's great. <laughs> even Kazar's brother gets a Lex Luthor type update to give the story a familial villain. And it's so much better than the ridiculous Parnival, the plunderer persona when he was just basically a really flashy pirate back in the day. Oh, you mean the dandy highwayman? <laughs> yep. That's him. <laughs> the art by Andy Kubert is a lot, but I love it. At times, his Kazar action pieces couldn't look more amazing, but there are other panels where body parts contort into knots and backs seem to bend 90 degrees backwards. I will not apologize for Kubert here, though. I love the look and extreme action of this Kazar run at the same level that I love his famous X-Men work. Wade was able to take Marvel's Tarzan and make him a relatable family man running through the jungle in his work boots, protecting the savage land from his evil billionaire family. And I would argue Kazar has never been done better than this run. I'm giving this a massive buy it. Yeah, you're 100% right. I, you know, Kazar is a tough character in, in, you know, the modern day. And he's never been like a grunting like, to my knowledge, he's never been, like, a, a grunting, like, me, Tarzan, you, uh, Jane. Back kinda. in the old, like, jungle action stuff and, like, when he first, like, in Daredevil and stuff, he he spoke with some broken English. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, but I mean, uh, but he's a, he's a character that also, like, he was young when he came to the Savage Land. He wasn't right. a baby, right? right? He wasn't, like, raised by apes. He was... They say he was nine when he came. To he's old enough to remember the the world outside. He knows right. how people talk, and, and it shows here. He was old enough to miss the trappings of the civilized world, sure. which is a great, like, through line in Wade's first arc. This was kind of the first and, time, though, that they, they played the character as, like, yeah, I do miss New York. Yes, I do miss... Oh, yeah, for sure. ...being yeah, able no, to order this is the, Before this, he's always like, I am the protector of the savage land, and I, I mean, never need like to very, see... Yeah. Right, it was all very... He was never you know, going home before this. There was a lot of posing and, and proclaiming yeah. as Lord of the Savage. He was Tarzan. Was like very, kind of like the jungle Namor, right? Yeah. It's like... And... I just, I love this take on the character. I love Shanna. 
as well. I love their relationship. Zabu's friendship with him is so freaking cute. It's the cutest. I love it so much. This is the Kazar where like he would go on to fight Thanos. And you can say that with a straight face because right. you've read, you read the book up to that point and you're like, yeah, of course he fights Thanos because yeah. Um, so I know that you put it in your notes. Uh, you were questioning who this guy Gregor is that comes to the Savage Land. Yeah, he trained. Gregor was uh, an accomplice of Craven the Hunter. Okay, because they, here they said you trained Craven the Hunter. Uh, that might be. He may have. He may have helped train Craven. Okay, but yeah, like he was an important. He was an. Uh, he had an important connection to Craven the Hunter. Craven, of course died and so gregor was out there in the world uh they brought I, I believe they brought gregor back at some point in the 90s when like they introduced craven's son and he became the new craven or whatever but uh, yeah but that's where gregor comes from i don't think that andy kubert has ever looked better than he does in Kazar. So, so good. It's so good. And, like I know that you're But like, it's crazy. You gotta admit. It's I mean crazy. I, I know that you mentioned like the, the contorted, you know, but like these are sinewy men doing sinewy things in the jungle. Like they're doing <laughs> I understand. Like so like is it maybe does it maybe stretch the bounds of realistic human anatomy? Maybe, but it's comics. I want to give a shout out to the inker on this run, Jesse Delperdang. Yeah. Because I think that specific pairing of, of art of penciler and inker turned out some of the best work of, of Kubert's career for sure. Delperdang worked on the X stuff with him too. And that's why it looks so goddamn good. I mean, it, but it, yeah, I, I absolutely love it. I think it's beautiful. And uh, this is a huge bite for me. I am a huge fan of this run a yeah. huge proponent of it like i will recommend it to anybody and like when they laugh and they say kazar <laughs> no this is really the say, only this is the only case you don't stuff understand you like, need to read if you like, want to if it. you if you're like if you're a fan of that kind of old old stuff like our our buddy jared woolly toots you know that's a different matter but like in in the in the here and now like i wouldn't recommend kazar to anybody except for this run of kazar fair enough and it's a huge buy-in for me. Gregor was an old servant and friend of Craven the Hunter, raised Craven's son, Vladimir Kravenoff, trained yeah. him. So he became the Grim Hunter and then later the second Craven. So Hunter. at this point, Vladimir must be running around when they say, oh, you trained. Yeah, because Vladimir, yeah, Vladimir showed up during the Clone Saga, which gotcha. would have been a okay. couple of years prior to this. Oh, my last thought was uh, this came out during an era, a late 90s era of Marvel, uh, kind of during Heroes Reborn. So while Heroes Reborn is going on and it's doing its crazy Liefeld and, and, and Lee nonsense, Marvel is also trying to like reinvigorate their line. There was a whole slew of new number ones that came out around this time thunderbolts number one is part of this initiative oh yeah Hazar yeah. number one and so like this is a great time to kind of jump in and check out some marvel properties that you may have missed in the late 90s let's hop on our time bubble and leave the time lost Savage Land behind for the far future year of 3005. 
it's usually always 1,000 years exactly from the time period you sure, read it in. So, sure. Yeah. Of course, I'm talking about Legion of Superheroes. Number one, this is, no joke, volume five of the Legion of Superheroes. We're up to like volume uh, 13 now. So. Yeah, well, it's, you yeah. uh, know. Again, it is by Mark Wade. It is from 2005. The art here is by Barry Kitson, and here is your solicit. The early days of the 31st century are a golden age for the galaxy as poverty, famine, war, and disease have become relics of the past, not only on Earth, but on most other known worlds. The dawning millennium is utopian, shining, optimistic, bright, and deadly dull. That is until a bright, defiant, energized team of superpowered teenagers from different worlds is assembled. They form a team of passionate activists and fierce dreamers crusading to make a difference and leave their mark on a society that has forgotten how to fight for change. Get ready for the Legion of Superheroes, fighting for justice and tolerance while learning from and learning to tolerate one another. The Legion of Superheroes is back for its second complete reboot, but not its last. So who better to write it than Legion superfan and co-architect of the 1994 overhaul? You guessed it, Mark Wade. While the post-Zero Hour Legion was more or less a modernized version of the original, this series is more of a departure. The broad strokes are still the same, of course. We're still dealing with a group of superpowered future teens fighting for peace throughout the galaxy. But some characters have their origins, powers, races, and even genders changed. He also reframes the group as a youth movement with thousands of followers all over the United Planets and a core team that's growing every day. These kids are obsessed with the heroic age where the heroes that we know fought for a better world, your Supermans and Batmans, etc. Before the world decided to stop fighting altogether. Everything is still completely recognizable to a fan of the classic stuff, but it's also a perfect jumping on point for readers new to the concept. Wade does a great job injecting a youthful energy into his dialogue in a way that doesn't feel like a middle-aged man trying way too hard to sound cool. Barry Kitson, Wade's collaborator on the excellent creator-owned series Empire, does some of the best work of his career on this series. His redesigns of the Legionnaires strike a perfect balance between the modern, the classic, and the age of heroes that these kids idolize. I absolutely adore the original Legion, and a part of me lives or dies with each new reimagining of the characters, depending on, on you know, how well it's executed. Wade and Kitson's Legion of Superheroes number one won this old fan over almost immediately. I'm giving this a buy it. I do not love the Legion that you mentioned and have never truly cared about it. This is the only legion run that i ever read that i cared about and that is saying something mr wade you made this shithead love the legion <laughs> okay this run is so good and like look barry kitson oh my god comic books didn't look like this at the time barry kitson came out and was just like who is this guy his art is incredible and i love wade's sort of like it's like this hippie take on the Legion where it's like, it's a movement, man. And you just don't get it. And like the old people, they're all stuck in their ways, man. We're going to change universe, you know? <laughs> and like they're peaceful warriors. They're doing their thing, you know, but they're not yeah. quite like 
punk rock lunatics or anything. They believe in something. Well, I mean, they're not anarchists, yeah, right? They're still fighting for a better tomorrow. Right. They believe in the youth and they believe that there's a better way and stuff to do this. And God, this is the only time I can truly say I've cared about the Legion. I'm giving this a gigantic buy it. If you have never seen Barry Kitson's art, go pick this up and then go pick up Empire, which is Wade and Kitson working together as well. That guy is outstanding. God, he's I one, mean, look, you, you're one of my like Barry Kitson first appeared in this comic book, but he'd been around for years. <laughs> no, I'm not saying he hadn't been around for years. I just think he had definitely been around and I'm not saying he was bad before this, but he, this is in my mind and maybe I'm wrong, but in my mind, this is where Barry Kitson's art like hit a whole new level of like, holy shit, Barry Kitson's good at this. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I think between this and Empire for sure. Yeah, yeah. Barry Kitson leveled up, as we like to say. We're going to stick with team books, but jump back to Marvel to talk about Fantastic Four, Volume 3, number 60, which I think was technically like they were doing the legacy numbering, so it was like 498, because 500 would be real quick here, which they would do a special whatever. 489, sorry. 489, yeah. This was written by Wade with art by Mike Waringo. Here is your setup that I wrote. The FF hire a publicist to come in and observe a week of the family's life in an attempt to improve their waning popularity. Also, Mark Wade proves he can write hip hop flow. (laughs) Now, you probably see a trend forming here, but just like Captain America, Fantastic Four was also at a very low point both sales and popularity-wise. Violence and decompressed storytelling was the order of the day. Fantastic Four never changed. They were just a happy family while the authority was making Superman look bad and selling gangbusters. Wade and Waringo came onto the book with the idea that they weren't going to fundamentally change anything, but again, reinforce what makes the FF great and give readers a break from the extreme they even put a nine cent price tag on the issue to get it into readers hands and that bet paid off big time wade uses the pr agent story to tell a very meta story that openly admits the ff are having trouble not just selling in the real world but maintaining their own popularity in the current marvel universe it's genius And instead of transforming them into an armored up team of badasses with guns, which Marvel did try not too long before this storyline, the PR agent comes to the conclusion that the FF are perfect just the way they are. I read an interview with Wade about his idea for his run, and he mentioned how everybody loves the thing. Everybody loves Johnny and Sue has plenty of fans too, but nobody at this time would call Mr. Fantastic their favorite character. So he set out to develop Reed as a flawed but brilliant character that readers could relate to for a change. I love that he cites Buckaroo Banzai as his model for what he wanted his Reed to be. (laughs) I totally love it. There isn't enough time to go into just how amazing Mike Waringo's work is on this run, but like Wade, he didn't want this assignment at first when it was pitched to him. Tom Brevoort came to him and said, we want you come jump on the fantastic four. We're going to get Mark Wade. Wade couldn't do it at that point because he was leaving cross gen and he had a non-compete contract 
So they had a three-month Adam Warren story, basically, that they ran before yeah, this. Yeah, they had some fill-ins, yep. While Ringo was warming up. And it was Ringo who was like, look, I'm not interested in drawing the Fantastic Four. They're, they're just boring. Like, the thing's fun to draw, but the rest of them are just kind of like people in blue suits and a guy on fire. And Brevoort told him, draw them any way you want. We'll let the next guy worry about what you did. And he was like, okay. <laughs> he doesn't, like, overly redevelop or change much he alters their outfits a little bit they definitely look a little more cartoony than they have before this but when i think of the fantastic four in my mind's eye i picture the way mike waringo draws them in this run this is a quintessential fantastic four run by wade and waringo r.i.p absolutely buy this and read this entire run it is wonderful if for nothing else if you took everything else out of it and just did the character development with reed and doom oh my god it's wonderful <laughs> yeah uh, well so yeah one of the best dr doom stories of all time oh yeah comes out of this run it's called unthinkable and it runs in the uh it's a four-part story leading up to issue 500 so 496 through 500 i guess or 97 through 500. So, so yeah, it's four chat, four chapters. And it is like legit. One of the best Dr. Doom stories ever created. And the origin of the oft mentioned on this show, girlfriends, dude, <laughs> <laughs> which is so gross, but a couple of things about this run uh, that I think are super fun. The reason this comic came out for nine cents like, why is that? That's such a weird number, right? Nine cents. It's because DC came out with Batman, the 10 cent adventure. Oh, I forgot about which that. Which was the first chapter of Bruce Wayne murderer. Yeah, yeah. And Marvel, this is like peak Bill Jameis, Joe Casada, screw around with people, yeah. you know, running Marvel. And so they were like, we're going to come out with the nine cent adventure. Screw you guys. Ours is one better. And so that's why this issue is nine cents, which I think is hilarious. Yeah. I think it's just so funny that like Bill Jameis, who was a very divisive figure, kept doing this outrageous nonsense. And then that freed up Joe Casada to do things like put Mark Wade on the fantastic four yeah, and put Christopher priest on black Panther. And like, because people were too busy looking at Bill Jameis show his ass, <laughs> which is hilarious to me. All that said, like, this is a really crazy run of fantastic four for a lot of different reasons, but these creators, their partnership is, is something very special. Yeah. And, um, this is a, a, a tremendous piece of work. This is a great first issue. This issue not only sets up the run, but it also sets up like a very much like the flash issue and very much like the Legion issue, very much like uh, a lot of the issues that we talked about today. This first issue showed you why the Fantastic Four are great. It's a huge buy it. Of course, it's wonderful. We've got links to more info on all these Mark Wade comics in our show notes if you want to know more. But before we can start talking about a different creator, we need to pick our favorite comic from this pile to enter a THN permanent collection. Matt, 
which comic was your favorite, and what is it that you think sets Wade apart as a writer? So I'm going to go in reverse order. And I think the thing that I love about Mark Wade is he knows how to drill down into that one thing that either makes a team or a character great and build a story based off that. Like, focus. Find that thing. Just boil it down. What is it? Is it Captain America's... Is it his muscles? Is it his superpowers? No, it's his courage. Is what's great about Kazar the fact that, like, he's like Tarzan? No. What's great about him is he's a family man. He's a guy just like you and me in an extreme situation. The, the Fantastic Four, what's great about them? They're a family. They're a family first and foremost, and they're explorers. He finds that one thing that makes it great and builds a story off of that and shows this understanding for comic book storytelling in that. Like, look, grab it, drill down into it, and let's take it to the extreme. Let's go as far as we can with that one thing that makes his character great, and I'm going to take you on a trip. And that's why I love it. That's why I absolutely love it. I think if I have to pick one of these books, and I don't want to, because they're all great. <laughs> it's Action Comics 572, obviously. Yeah. If I have to pick one, it's probably this Fantastic Four issue, because it stands alone on its own. He retells the origin. He had the balls to come out in 2002 and retell the origin of the Fantastic Four. Just reset everything for like old fans and new fans and tell the people that weren't buying the book, you don't understand the Fantastic Four. It's your fault. They are great and I'm going to prove it to you. And it, and it paid off. It worked. Well, That's, it's not just that, but he also, he also saw something. He added something to the origin of the Fantastic Four without fundamentally changing oh, yeah. the origin of the Fantastic Four. Like, Big time. You learn something in this issue about Reed's motivation for the rocket trip. Yeah. There's a and speech he like gives. That. There's a speech he gives to his daughter, Valeria, in the end. That where you go, oh. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Really? It's not it's not the it's not the mo- it's not the motivation for the rocket trip. It, it's the motivation for why this scientist when he discovered that his uh, friends were now all scientific freaks, he decided that superheroes was the thing to be. Yeah. Okay, you know, uh, and uh, it's such a wonderful... If you're Reed Richards, like, you could probably fix this, right? And it he, seems like a no-brainer. Well, no, he's tried for years to fix this. Well, later on he did, but... <laughs> well, but even then, not really, no. Yeah, I guess, that's true. Like, the, the he would eventually d- figure out a way to cure Ben Grimm, but only for one week a year. Yeah, that's true. Like the serum only kicks in one week a year and he doesn't even know when, but it's such a, it's such a, like an obvious thing, right? Like it's such an obvious addition that you can't believe that nobody ever thought of it before. Yeah. And that's, I I think Wade is very good at that. He did the same thing to the flash. Yeah. And, uh, so for me, I'm going to agree that the issue that deserves the spot is fantastic four. Even though I love The Flash, like Mark Wade's run on The Flash is not only my favorite run on the character, but one of my favorite runs of comics of all time. But Flash number zero, as good as it is, I don't know if it's his best issue in that run. No, no way. And, it's great, but it's it's not his best. No way. Right. It's just, it's a very good, like, one and done. Right. Uh, but this Fantastic Four, it's really something else. And 
for me, what makes Wade such a good writer? I think you just said One it. Of, I think you just said it. Wait, like well, the way that he yeah, can there's, take there's that, that, add just a little something to right. that he, story. He contributes. He doesn't come right. in and kick the door down. He adds something. Like he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't tear down the house. He adds to the house. And is it so like when there, Spawn we found out was the reason Batman became Batman? Like, shut up, Todd McFarlane. Right. <laughs> and so there, there's certainly that. But for me, I Wade gets to the heart of the character and he puts the character first. Yeah. Even when he's doing a team book, he puts character first over spectacle. That's why his JLA feels different, even though we're still dealing with like huge high stakes. Sure. It's why his Avengers, you know, felt different. It's why uh, Fantastic Four feels different. It's because he focuses on the character and their personalities, their loved ones, the supporting cast. And that's what I love about his work. Yeah. I, I think he does such an amazing job curating these characters are like shepherding these characters forward every time he comes onto a project. Without a doubt. Yeah. So funny and, story. Yeah. He was in that same interview that I read. He was talking about he never cared about Fantastic Four growing up. It just it wasn't a comic book that he read, didn't care about it. And the reason being, like he was on a cruise with his dad and new mom because dad had just remarried and he was super traumatized by like the whole divorce and everything. And they went to a drugstore in the Bahamas and he was like, comics that'll distract me picked up some comics he's like i'm gonna just grab stuff i've never read and he picked up fantastic four 140 and in the last page of like fantastic four 140 sue was like read you son of a bitch i want a divorce and he was just like oh <laughs> it just triggered him <laughs> <was> like, i'm done <laughs> it's great it's a great story i love it mark wade uh, like it's rare that you kind of find a favorite and that does not evolve over time but Mark Wade has been my favorite comic writer since I was like 12 years old. Yeah, him, um, it's a short list. Him, Peter David, it's a very short list. I don't know. I mean, like that I can say continually to, and still today is putting out stuff like, oh, you still got it, baby, you know? Yeah, I mean, 30 years, 30 years, yeah. Mark Wade has been my favorite comic writer. Now that we've fulfilled our CLB duties, we find ourselves reconstituting in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where we come to meditate and study our ancient tomes, and of course, make our must-read picks for the next new Comic Book Wednesday. Joe Patrick, what should these listeners be picking up from their LCS next Wednesday, January 18th? I'm so glad you asked. My pick for next week is Nightwing number 100 from DC Comics. It's $6.99. It's written by Tom Taylor with art by these people I'm about to list. We like to call them various, but we've got a list here. They're a gang. It's the various gang. Here's your solicit. Art by Bruno Redondo, Rick Leonardi, Scott McDaniel, Michael Janin, and Javier Fernandez. Come join us with big smiles and even bigger celebrations as Nightwing hits its milestone issue 100. Cheer how far we've come by looking through the decades at what has made Nightwing a beloved hero. And what better way to celebrate than with familiar friends and artists? Then with Heartless creating a lair in the heart of Bloodhaven to take Blockbuster's throne, Nightwing will follow suit, setting up a headquarters of his own 
with the help of some friends who helped make him who he is now, of course, the night we gave. The wing cave. I can't wait. I don't know if it's going to be the wing I cave. I hope it's not. I maybe hope it's neither the, a cave and wing is not in the Maybe name. it'll be the night cave. That's, got, that's better. It's probably not going to be a cave. It's not going to be a cave. Look, if you've been listening to the show for any length of time over the last couple of years, you know how much I love the current run of Nightwing. So you got that. You got him riding high following the end of uh, Christ, Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths. You've got this milestone celebration. Best of all, you've got... Scott McDaniel drawing I Nightwing. I know. I know. I am excited. <laughs> it makes me squeal like a pig. Even if it's just a pinup, I'm going to go. <laughs> I, I can't wait. I can't wait. Love it. Love it. My pick for next week is also Batman influence because we can't do anything differently on this show. It's Batman. One bad day. Bane from DC. It is seven 99. It's written by Joshua Williamson with art by Howard Porter. We were just, Oh shit. We were no just kidding. talking about that guy. Oh yeah. Here's your solicit. A past present and future destroyed by venom. Bane broke the bat. He's one of the only villains to ever truly vanquish the dark Knight. But is that all he's ever accomplished? Decades from now, Bane is a washed up wrestler reliving his glory days in the ring, defeating someone dressed like Batman every day. But when he discovers that there's a new source of venom in the world, he'll do everything he can to shut down the facility it's coming from for good and make sure that no one takes the poison that ruined his life. An epic saga set throughout Bane's life, expanding on the hopes dreams, regrets, and failures of one of DC's most legendary villains brought to you by the iconic creative team of Joshua Williamson, just worked on Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths and The Flash and Howard Porter who worked on The Flash and Justice League. We love them both. I think we've enjoyed some of these Batman One Bad Days but up till now, up till this point, they've all just sort of been one-shot stories. This is sort of like a sprawling future look at Bane himself, which I think sounds really interesting. They've all been stories set more or less in the current day. Yeah, for the most part. And this one is taking a break from that and showing us something a little different. It's a fun idea. I love Bane. Bane is easily one of my favorites, probably like top two favorite bat villains. So I'm curious to see what Williamson can do with him. Howard Porter. Guy can draw anything he wants. I love him. I love him. I love him. You know what? I, I used to think Bane was pretty cool until he killed Alfred, and now I hate him. So. Oh, like that. I mean, yeah. Was that his fault, or was that you know? Yeah, yeah, Matt. He snapped me. He snapped Alfred's neck. Yeah, but I mean, I guess if it's Tom King's fault. I was gonna say, did he do that, it. Joe, or did Tom King do that? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Right. City of Bane was not great. The THN trade of the week for January 18th is Public Domain Volume One from Image. It's 16.99. It's written and drawn by Chip Zdarsky. Here's your solicit. Sid Dallas is responsible for pop culture's greatest hero, the Domain. But his sons, Miles and David, have a complicated relationship with both the creation and their creator. Can they convince their dad to fight for their family's legacy? This fun and heartfelt series written and illustrated by Eisner winner Chip Zdarsky from Sex Criminals and Daredevil explores a wild alternate world where comic book creators aren't properly acknowledged or compensated for their creations. <laughs> Crazy, I know. <laughs> Collects public domain one through five. I love Chip Zdarsky's solicits. You can always tell when he yeah, writes them himself. It's definitely him. Uh, we really enjoyed public domain number one, which we reviewed on episode 669. We gave it a huge buy it. I'm behind, uh, but I did follow it for the first several issues. I think it's a great book. 
And this is absolutely something you should check out. It's it occupies that kind of space. Uh, I love comic books about comic books. Yeah. Inside you know? baseball comic books, but like, but not just straight up like the history of whatever. Like, no, no, it's like uh, so. Brian K. Vaughn and Philip Bond did a book called The Escapists. It's about the, these people. Uh, it's like the grandson or whatever of either Cavalier or Clay from The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, the yeah. novel by Michael Chabon. Yeah. And Chabon uh, oversaw all that stuff. Like yeah, like of, yeah. getting the rights to the character, the escapist, and trying to cr- do a revival of the escapist. I love that shit. It and was public great. domain is kind of like a right in that wheelhouse. Yeah. Great work by Zadarsky. Check it out. You know what, Matt? We shouldn't be the only ones making picks. Let us know what you plan on picking up over at our Discord in the new comics channel. Also, be sure to let us know if you dug our picks or if you'll be paying us a visit on your next bad day. That is it for THN 693. Next week, we are back reviewing new comics and we'll give you a sneak peek of our Patreon Extra. It's going to be sexy. This one, I've heard, (laughs) is going to be sexy as hell. So... In the meantime, join us for a call-in. Sexiness not guaranteed. In the meantime, join us for a call-in show, THN Cover to Cover. It happens Saturdays at 1030 Central Time. Check out our Discord for details on how to join us. Joe Patrick, one of the things we like to talk about on that show, we don't just do comic news and talk about TV and stuff. We also have the question of the week. Yeah, we do. This week's question comes from our Discord, courtesy of Mark Stern. He's also known as Cuckoo Studios. Oh, I thought it was Cuckoo Studios. Uh, no, that's uh, that's a else. different thing. <laughs> yeah, he's a very talented artist. He's done some excellent fan art for us. Check it out on the Two Headed Nerd Facebook page. Here's his question: With Kevin Feige at the helm of the MCU and James Gunn taking the reins over at the DCU now, name a movie director who would be a terrible studio head for either cinematic universe or who would be an outside the box excellent choice to create some amazingly off the wall movies based upon their previous styles like for example Wes Anderson's MCU oh love it but I want to hear some pitches on bad stuff too I want to hear bad ones yeah (laughs) Yeah, Dean Devlin's X-Men yeah so any film director that would either be a great or a terrible choice yeah to take the reins of the Marvel or DC film universes and why. But we need reasons why. So come equipped with reasons. Please keep your question of the week suggestions coming. We need them like like our precious life's blood. Whoa. If you, I know. It's I very important. It's that I important. I don't even that bad. I can fart something. <laughs> no, I, need, I don't know. I need them. If you can't make it to cover to cover live, shoot an MP3 to two at nerd at gmail.com or leave a message on the THN hotline. That's 402-819-4894. But if you leave or send a recorded message, please keep it to two minutes or less. If you're new to the show and you'd rather Bane snaps your neck than listen to any more, I assure you it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN or digital long box archive at twoheadednerd.com. THN is a listener-supported podcast. It would not be possible without the generosity of donors like our newest patron, Carrie Pierce. I can't believe you guys still keep showing up. Thank you, Carrie. If you like what you hear every week, it's easy to be cool like Mr. Pierce. 
or Miss Pierce. I'm not sure. It's easy to be cool like Pierce. I How's think, that? Yeah, you know, I'm not going to, I don't want to, I don't want to assume yeah. too much, but C-A-R-Y is typically the male spell. Fair enough. Like Carrie Elways. Yes. If you want to be cool like Carrie Elways, who also supports this show, you, <laughs> it's easy to support. You can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash two-headed nerd. Before we go, our weekly shout out goes to Black Panther Wakanda Forever's Angela Bassett, who became the first actor to win a major award for their work in a Marvel movie last night. Suck on that, Black Adam. <laughs> Bassett won the Golden Globe for Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role for her portrayal of Queen Ramonda in the film Word to you, Ms. Bassett, and congratulations for the well-deserved honor. You were outstanding in that movie. And I'll tell you what, that woman keeps getting more attractive. It is crazy. She is just, like, more gorgeous every time I see her. I love her so much. Angela Bassett, way to go. That is not a measure of her worth as an actor, but yes, no, I No, but she's she gorgeous. Beautiful. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just vote for that other white bitch instead of you for supporting actress. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off. Wow. <laughs>